Thank you, and welcome to Word Christchurch's Shifting Point of View session. You know that's where you are, right? None of you have wandered in, don't know where you are, thought it was the sound of music. Um, tonight, an evening with Simon Winchester. Thank you first to the, um, the funders and partners of Word Christchurch, Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Heartland Bank, Te Rananga Ang Aitahu, and the New Zealand Listener. And thanks also to the Mana Whenua of Otatahi, Ngai Tua Huriri. I think Simon Winchester is what you might call a polymath. He has been uh, an oil rig worker, he's been a geologist in Uganda, he's been a foreign correspondent during the troubles in Ulster, Watergate, the Falklands War. He's written of earthquakes and volcanoes of China, the Atlantic, the Pacific, of weather and the British Empire, of his time in an Argentine prison and more. His breakthrough book in 1997 was The Surgeon of Crowthorn. Entitled in the more excitable United States, The Professor and the Madman. <laughs> A tale of murder, insanity, and the making of the Oxford Dictionary. It possibly holds the title for the longest title, Pacific, silicon chips and surfboards, coral reefs and atom bombs, brutal dictators, fading empires and the coming collision of the world's superpowers. Not my subtitle. They always say that. <laughs> I didn't write the headline. It's also possible that he can fix a jet plane and he was certainly able to predict the demise of Rolls-Royce based on a bloody encounter with a silver seraph in 1998. A vehicle I'd like to think the surgeon of Crowthorn paid for, but no, it was borrowed. I know these abilities because of his latest book, exactly how precision engineers created the modern world. Please welcome Simon Winchester. Uh, there will be time for questions at the end. Although, the people in the last session made long statements. <laughs> you won't do that, will you? <laughs> that story about the Rolls-Royce was really cool. You cut your finger, and this is not what oh, Rolls-Royce right, is. Yes. yes. And this is not what Rolls-Royces are about. They're about perfection. Mm -hmm. And consequently, you knew something wasn't right. I... The Sunday Times back in the 19, uh, end of the 1980s <clears throat> was spending money like drunken sailors and they gave me this amazing commission to do six articles about Europe because back then it was believed that no self-respecting Englishman knew anything about Europe, certainly not the readers of the Sunday Times. So would I go with a photographer and make six journeys anywhere I wanted in Europe and uh, write about them, 5,000 words each. So Patrick Ward, he was called, and I, we sailed a yacht from Stockholm to Helsinki. We drove motorbikes from Munich to Turin. We rode a horse through the Black Forest of Germany. We walked, at least I walked. A horse. Two horses. <laughs> <laughs> we were friendly, but not that friendly. <laughs> and then walked from Cadiz to Gibraltar. 
uh, took the train from Victoria Station to the Hotel Victoria in Brieg in Switzerland, and then having done, delivered therefore 25,000 words of copy on those five journeys, we adjourned to the Travellers Club in London that I belong to still, and we're discussing the, the final, the culminating journey by car, which we thought we would go from the westernmost point of Europe, which at the time we thought was um, called the Point de Corsen in Finisterre in France, to Astrakhan, where the, the hats the, come from. The hats come from, where the <laughs> Volga debouches into the Caspian Sea, which is sort of the edge of Debouches, you see. It's just, uh, you knew, you know that he wrote the origin of the Oxford Dictionary just from that word. <laughs> Debouches, sorry I interrupted. No, 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 I wish I'm, I, I shan't do that again. I no, you, no. please so, do. No, I won't. So um, I had a pretty ragged old Volvo at the time, and so we were sitting having lunch, and I, as the wine flowed, the Volvo became less and less attractive, and Patrick <laughs> said, shouldn't we perhaps take a rather more seemly motor car? And he said, how about a Rolls Royce? So I said, what a capital idea, and went down to the um, telephone in the lobby of the club and called Rolls Royce PR and said, Sunday Times, blah, blah, blah. And they said, I said, would it be possible to have a car? And they said, um, instead of falling off his chair with amusement, he said, um, give me half an hour. And half an hour later, he rang back and said, we have a, a, an ocean blue silver, it wasn't a serif, it was the model before the serif. Anyway, silver something or other, um, with white upholstery. Um, and you can have it, it come, it's a canceled order, it comes off the production line tomorrow. You come up to crew, and you can have it for three months, take it wherever you want. And so I went up with my son, I remember, to pick this magnificent machine. I'd never driven a Rolls-Royce before in my life. And, um, and we, I, doing sort of um, working out teething trouble, which really meant showing it off to all my friends. I drove it for about <laughs> a week in England and uh, never got a parking ticket outside the office because the parking meter people thought RRM1, which was the registration, was Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I, I lived in a little village outside Oxford, and when I drove it to the house, all the villagers thought it was Roger Moore had come, <laughs> come to stay. And anyway, then drove this extraordinary machine, and the journey was an enormous success, and we had all sorts of adventures, <coughs> as you might imagine. And the consequence of that was that for the next many years, whenever I was going on sort of a big foreign assignment, a Rolls-Royce would turn up. And the next assignment was, this was 1984, I remember, because I went with Don McCullin, very famous war photographer, to Los Angeles to write about how the gangs of East Los Angeles were dealing with the coming Olympic Games. And we turned up at the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard, where Bobby Kennedy was shot, and um, checked in, and the concierge said, there's this little envelope for you. And uh, inside the envelope was the key to a Rolls-Royce Camargue, probably the ugliest Rolls-Royce ever made, sitting out, they couldn't, obviously couldn't go and sell it, um, sitting out in the parking lot. And so we drove that, and it became an extraordinarily good journalistic tool, because the various gangs we wanted to see didn't want to see us. They were terribly sort of hesitant to talk to English journalists, until I turned up with this car, and the gang leader of a particularly unpleasant gang called the White Fences, who had the word White Fences tattooed on his up and, he showed me, elsewhere. 
were you um, saying on his penis? I was saying that, yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> okay. He didn't say what, white fences until fully extended. Um, <laughs> I, um, so you can't vouch for that or you can? No, no, I'm afraid I can, yes, yes. He was a man who became happy very quickly. <laughs> uh, and, um, Cheap date. Yeah, very, not for me, though. And, um, and then they, they continued to give me these cars until, <coughs> do excuse me, on this particular day, um, they gave me yet another, this silver seraph, and I was putting my bags into the back of it and the factory crew and brushed my hand against the, where the license plate was and cut it. There was sort of blood on my finger, and it was a screw that had been improperly inserted into a hole. And, it and struck at that me point, that Rolls Royce was becoming um, losing the plot. Basically. And indeed, it was. It was and sold to the Germans, and the rest is history. I mean, a lot of your book on precision deals with very tiny things that mean a lot. The jet plane reference um, that I made was about your description of the catastrophic engine failure of the Airbus 380, A380, as a consequence of the lack of precision of a tiny pipe, which if you read that chapter in the book, it would just put you off flying in a jet because you realize the catastrophic events that could follow something so minor as a tiny little hole, a tiny little bit out of alignment. Didn't that terrify you? Well, I must say it did, and uh, I, that's sort of fairly on, well on in the book when I'm looking at sort of limits of precision, how far commerce is making us build faster planes that carry more people less and less expensively. And I firmly believe that um, manufacturers are cutting corners, and one of the ways in which, in this particular instance, on the A380, they had to machine something called an oil feed stub pipe, which is about the, it's about three inches long and about the diameter of a drinking straw. And they're manufactured by a Rolls-Royce subsidiary in, um, coincidentally, it's Rolls-Royce jet planes. I don't have a vendetta against Rolls-Royce in this uh, book. Um, but it was mismachined by the tiniest fraction of a millimeter. And it was a machine fault, not a human well, fault? Well, no, it was a human fault because he misplaced it in the machine. And then when what should have happened, he noticed that it was the wall of it was a, something like a hundredth of a millimeter too thin. His computer would have told him that, but he sort of said, ah, to hell with it, and passed it. And all the inspectors down the line passed it. So the moral of that story would seem to be that we've got so precise, and even more precise, you go on to even more greater precision in you know, cell phone, computer work, yeah. that there's no room for the human in it at all anymore? No, that's, that's effectively what I was trying to argue at the end, but then making the point that in our race to produce more and more precise things, and I'm glad you brought up cell phones, because in an average iPhone, um, the chip, which is about as big as my small fingernail, um, contains four billion transistors, not million, but billion. And the transistor was invented, what, in 1948, and the first ones were about as big as my fist. Now you can get four billion of them into a, a telephone and think nothing of it, but they're operating at sort of molecular level where they sort of interfere with one another and behave or have the potential to behave 
most peculiarly. I think the statistic that I came away with thinking was most bizarre of all was that there are now more transistors, remembering that the transistor is only 60 or 70 years old, more transistors in the world today than there are leaves on all the trees in all the world. And I drive down the Massachusetts Turnpike often, which where my home is, and it's thousands of trees on all sides. And you think, how many uncountable millions of leaves must there be? And yet, there are not as many leaves on all the trees in all the world, let alone on the Massachusetts Turnpike, as there are transistors. Mm. And these things are being made too, so small that one wonders how reliable they can possibly be. I, I jumped into the middle of, of your book. Um, you go back and you examine when precision was born. And you trace it back to the steam engine. Yes. Where precision was required in order to contain the steam, in order to get the power. And you admit that it's a controversial date of birth because you could, you could go back, yeah. you know, to your... I mean, you mentioned the, the strange machine that was found in the Mediterranean? No, yes, near the island of Antikythera in Greece. Which the Antikythera is, mechanism. You know all about that, right. Yeah. It's and which is insanely precise, but completely inaccurate. So that yeah, doesn't that's, count. That's, it's made of all these little brass wheels, which were machined or manufactured by the Greeks thousands of years ago. and was found, you know, hauled up by um, fishermen in, in Greece. And people couldn't believe that such a thing had been made. And it looked astonishingly precise. Basically, it fitted into a box and you could turn a crank and it would, and they've made reproductions of it, um, forecast the positions of the stars and the planets and the moon, such as were known 3,000, 4,000 years ago, woefully inaccurately. I mean, the stars are 40 degrees out of true or something like that. But even so, it shows that there was in ancient Greek, in Greece, a sort of determination to, to use metal to make things that could tell this story. But then no one did anything like it. For, they didn't turn it into a clock, for instance, and why they never made clocks, because the Greeks used water clocks and candle clocks, but never a mechanical clock. And yet they had the wherewithal to do it thousands of years ago, but they didn't. Then the, the, the technique disappeared and it wasn't improved until this crucial date, which I'd be interested to know, actually, if the younger people in this audience will know the other significance of the date, that the year, 1776, has all sorts of significance, but the date was not July the 4th, but the 4th of March. And I wonder if anyone knows the significance of that date, other than being, in my view, the origin of precision. Hands up. It needs to be a young person. Well, okay. I'm sorry you don't qualify, sir. <laughs> Well, this is not my joke, my pun, but it's Star Wars Day. March. Ah. No, it's May. Why didn't I make it as said there? I got it wrong. Would you have known if I had said May? Yes, of course. Anyway, may the fourth be with you. So. <laughs> the idea of precision is then that it has to be made by a machine in order to be precise. Yes and no. I mean, the first sort of the key to precision is making things that are perfectly flat. 
because then you can run lathes on a flat surface which can do things to very keen, small tolerances. And making things flat, which was all to do with a man called Henry Maudsley. Um, he made um, locks, right? Well, Joseph Brammer and, and Henry Maudsley. Well, he made them, the yeah. screw. Well, that was um, Whit ah! Whitworth. I'm so sorry. The screw on, the, on that book, is on, on the jacket, is... Uh, what was the Whitworth. screw in the shop window? Who made that screw in the shop window? That was Joseph Brammer. Right. Brammer was an amazing figure who... Um, he did that, but also at 224 Piccadilly, in the very western end of Piccadilly, he put a lock. He made screws, but he also made locks. Ah. And he was so proud of this lock, which was 1796, I think. He claimed it was absolutely unpickable. Mm -hmm. And put this little lock, which was a sort of cylinder, and it had 18 levers inside it and looked pretty formidable. Um, put it on a red velvet cushion in the bay window in Piccadilly with a notice saying that anyone that can pick this lock, I'll pay 200 guineas, which was a great deal of money back in the 18th century. And no one could. People would come into the shop and say, oh, I can do it. I mean, you couldn't destroy it. You couldn't hit it with a hammer or something. And so 1810, I think Brahma himself died and his son took over the firm, which still exists in London to this day. And it wasn't until 1851, so now 60 years, essentially, that no one had picked it, but it was now at the Great Exhibition in Crystal Palace under a glass cloche, same red velvet, same lock, and next to it, another glass cloche with 200 gold guinea coins, saying anyone that can pick this can have that. And um, an American stepped forward. He was the head of a company called the para-utoptic lock company, a man called Newell. And he said, I can do it. And um, they said, fine, be our guest. And he worked on this thing. He had brought over all sorts of equipment from America, little tiny slivers of metal, tiny magnifying glasses, little flashlights that would illuminate the interior of this, of this um, cylinder. And 51 hours of hard work, there was a click and it opened. And Mr. Brahma, Jr., said, well, you've done it. But quite honestly, Mr. Newell, I don't think you've really impugned the dignity of our lock, because no burglar is going to take 51 <laughs> hours. So I think we're still pretty secure. So, um, but now you've picked it. Here's the 200 guineas. And by the way, your para-utoptic lock, can anyone in the crowd step forward and pick it successfully, because he claimed it was so sophisticated, it was completely unpickable. And a gentleman stepped forward from the crowd and using just two small pieces of wood, opened it in 15 minutes. <laughs> and his name was Elihu Yale. So the head of the Yale Lock Company did it. See, that story's not in that book. It is. No, not the Yale story. I promise you. Is it? I absolutely Because I was thinking, you know so much now. You've got so many stories. Your brain is not just well-stocked. It's like overstocked, right? <laughs> that you must find it difficult to know when to stop telling the story. Would you, you like me to... You get story leakage. <laughs> how do you decide? I mean, books, how do you decide when to stop? Do you know what I mean? Well, of course I do, and I mean, a, a, an editor helps. 
And I'm very bad at starting stories, and there's a lot of throat clearing goes on before I sort of get into gear, as it were. But no, this, I think the, the narrative arc of this book, it ends with the look at, actually, I, I do know a good place where it, where it stops actually worked quite well. You're looking for Yale, wasn't Yeah, I found it now. <laughs> but... Damn. Sorry. <laughs> And the man who picked it was the scion of a new firm of precise locksmiths and founder of the firm that is now part of the biggest lockmaker in the world, Linus Yale. Linus Yale. Just yeah. Phew, thank heavens. <laughs> but I tell you, if I can, just the way I did end this was, was to look at metrology of the science of measurement. So looking at the meter, well, I mean, the first thing, the first standard of measurement was the cubit, was the length of a pharaoh's arm from the tip of his finger to his elbow. And then it became the inch and the foot and the mile and all the rest of these things. And then it was codified largely by the French, the meter and so on. But key to everything was the second. How long is a second? And the key place where now research into the nature of time and the length of the second is being done is in... Beijing, and so I went to many of these physical laboratories, one in Teddington, one in um, Japan, of course the big one in America. Um, but in Beijing, they've concentrated on the second because, and let me just say parenthetically, that all the physical standards of measurement have now been abandoned. And this year, the last one was abandoned, which is the standard kilogram. The kilogram, which is a cylinder of platinum, about a little bit bigger than a, a Zippo cigarette lighter. Um, that, in under three glass things, cloches, in a dark basement in Sèvres, outside Paris, was the kilogram. So if you buy a kilogram of sugar in Christchurch, once every few years, the grocer's kilogram scale will be measured against the kilogram that New Zealand has in Wellington. And once every very, very few years, that kilogram from Wellington will be flown to Sèvres and measured against, not actually against the sacred kilogram, because that's rarely touched, but against six copies of it, which were made in the 1890s. Well, that is no longer the case anymore. As from this last month, actually, the kilogram was abandoned. It's now all bound up with electronics and terribly in my way, way of thinking boring but all tied up with the nature of the second. And I like the fact that the people that work on the nature of the second in Beijing, when they step out of their laboratory, which is not in downtown Peking, which is out in the suburbs, and you can see the Great Wall snaking over the mountains, um, they step out into a, there's a garden, and there are apple trees, which in the summertime bear apples. And one of them has a little plaque, and it was presented by the British National Standards Laboratory back in the 1990s, I think. And it is from a tree, which ultimately came from a tree in Warpleston Manor, outside Cambridge, under which Newton sat in 1666, when the first apple, guided by gravity, fell to the ground. And I think that's a wonderful... So that was when I, how I finished the book. You've got um, a house full of clocks in New England, which none of which 
I think, are accurate. Oh, God, no. And you have to correct them and wind them. and wind. That's what you love about them? I think I do. And, and towards, once again, the end of this book is, is the raising the question of that human beings now worshipping precision should, I think, take stock and say, well, should we fetishize precision and shouldn't we stop for a moment and revere perhaps the joy of the imprecise and of craftsmanship particularly? And these clocks were all made lovingly by craftsmen who said, well, we don't need to know the time to a five thousandth of a second, which you get if you have a Casio digital watch. I mean, who cares if you're a, on radio? Of course you have to know pretty well, don't you? <laughs> Uh, and, and, and so I, I, so every Sunday morning, in fact, I shall have to ring my wife tonight to tell her to do it tomorrow morning. Um, I wind the clocks and, on, and correct them. So on Sunday morning, they're all in rate. And on Monday, they're still pretty good. By Tuesday, they're beginning to fall out of rate. And by Thursday, it's a complete shambles. <laughs> but I love that line from... Dorothy L. Sayers, that lovely novel, Gordy Knight, um, in which she talks about walking, well, this is Lord Peter Wimsey, detective and everything, walking back through Oxford on a summer's night, listening to the college uh, clocks chiming midnight, as she says, in friendly disagreement. <laughs> and I love the notion of friendly disagreement, which to me is far more attractive than precision. And this leads you on to a, a discussion of Japan, which you call an extremely functional and precise society, which nevertheless honors um, the under-machined. Yeah. What do you call it, wabi-sabi? Wabi-sabi, yeah. The, the, the delight in, in the, the knowledge that there's nothing precise about humankind, there are no straight lines in nature, and it likes sort of raggedness and informality up to a point. Um, and sure, we, we know Japan for Casio and Seiko and Nikon and Canon as being paragons of, of precision, and yet they do the most exquisite woodwork, which is by its very nature non-precise, because wood which bulges and bends cannot possibly be precise doing urushi, you know, um, lacquerware and working with bamboo. I mean, none of these things can be precise, but are stunningly beautiful. And I was struck by, um, I went to the Seiko watch factory in um, Morioka in northern Honshu. Seiko, which means precise, I mean, it's all dedicated to precision. Um, they invented the quartz movement, which does, without any moving parts, just a a vibrate an oscillating quartz crystal. Because quartz crystals always oscillate at exactly the same rate. When subjected to an electric current. Right. Yes, they do, absolutely. It's in, in See, I never knew that. I mean, I knew about quartz watches, but I didn't know why they were quartz. That's extraordinary. Anyway, carry on. Well, and you see the production line. It's, you go up on the second floor, and there is a production line chattering away with thousands of robots making quartz movements, and they make mainly for export these days, 25,000 a day. Um, but then they could sense that I wasn't terribly interested in that because I'd seen a lot of production lines making very precise things. And they said, oh, we know what you want. And they took me through a series of double doors and so everything went quiet and 
were in the sort of cathedral-like quiet of another part of the second floor, <coughs> where there were men and women, each with their own desks, with magnifying glasses, with tiny screwdrivers, with little tweezers, with hairsprings and mainsprings and jewels and things, by hand assembling mechanical watches, which are sold hardly. Do <coughs> you see them outside Japan? The brand name is Grand Seiko. They're expensive. They only make about 100 a week, I think. And yet they are all accurate. I mean, they'll lose five or six seconds a week, but who cares? They're the triumph of the watchmaker's art. And the Japanese, therefore, in my view, anyway, have their feet firmly on the ground in that, yes, they recognize the advantages of precision, but they're not slaves to it and love craftsmanship. As well. So this is not, it's not a valid allegory of Rolls-Royce versus Henry Ford? Well, is it? no, it's not. That, that's, that's rather different. The, I, I take, I look, the car industry is, is very interesting in that regard, and I, I do take these two Henrys who were both born in 1863, one in America, one in North England, um, both fascinated by the idea of mechanical propulsion, both had the same de Dion quadricycles, which are basically bicycles bolted together with a two-horsepower engine, incredibly unsafe and noisy and dirty, but they gave these two men something of a vision, and the, but their vision parted almost immediately. Henry Royce uh, decided that what he wanted to do was to make this contraption into the most perfect automobile that could ever possibly be made. And Henry Ford said, America is a beautiful country. We've got the Grand Canyon and New England and all the rest of it. I want everyone in America to be able to see it, so I want to make a car that is inexpensive, affordable to everybody. And so I look, given these divergent principles, look at two cars, the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, which was produced from 1908 to 1920, roughly, and the Model T Ford, almost exactly the same period. The Silver Ghost, they made 8,000 of, handmade. And it, it, precision wasn't what it was all about, because if two parts didn't fit, then the man who was making them would file it down until it did fit. 8,000 were made, of which 5,000 are still running today. The Model T, which achieved exactly what Henry Ford wanted, everyone bought one. They made 16 million of them. And what did you say, it only had 100 parts? Well, that's another thing. They only had 100 parts, and they were all made exactly the same. So the whole principle of interchangeable parts, which is sort of what precision is all about. But the problem was, so you have this factory in Dearborn in Michigan, which is the first real production line where these things were being assembled and moving in front of the workers. And the hundred parts, whether they were for a carburetor or a brake or a steering wheel or whatever, were in hoppers on the floor above. And they would drop down with sort of depressing Lucille Ball type regularity <laughs> and to be put into the proper place. And if they weren't made precisely, they wouldn't fit. And so the production line would grind to a halt and all the men would stand around smoking until it was prized out and a proper one put, put in in its place. So precision was essential for mass manufacturing, but not as with the watches and as with the Rolls-Royces, mm. the old Rolls-Royces anyway, not when the thing was handmade. Your father was a precision engineer. You dedicate this book to him. 
And um, you describe him as a most meticulous man. Um, and when you were a child, he showed you gauge blocks, which, as I understand it, they're measuring devices, and they are so smooth that when put together, you cannot pull them apart. Is that what is... Why not? Well, it, oddly enough, it's, uh, people have been debating why not for a long time, and someone... Saw it on, I think it was Twitter yesterday. Um, didn't believe this, and so he filmed himself putting two gauge blocks together and finding that you couldn't. You have to slide them apart like that. You can't pull. What's them the apart. word you use? Ring. Ringing. W r i n g i n g. Um, you can ring them apart, but you can't pull them apart because they seem there are no sort of asperities which would allow air to creep in, and so a point of weakness, and so you can't rock them back and forth and pull them apart. They're so flat that they seem to bond molecularly, and the two pieces of metal become effectively one piece of metal. Mm. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. And my editor in London, very sweetly, um, bought a set of gauge blocks for her eight-year-old little boy, because she thinks every home should have one. What's a set? 103? 103 pieces, yeah. And you usually, they usually come in nice little... You can buy them... You know, on eBay, and uh, people discard them now because you use electronic means for measuring things. But old um, gauge block sets will go for $50 or something. Have you got some? I have, yeah. And they now make them out of ceramic, and in Japan, of course. So you get ceramic bonding, which is even more bizarre. Is it something It is vacuum, it's like a vacuum seal? Well, no. I think it is, certainly with the metal ones, it's actually... Molecular forces. Really? Yes. Yeah. I don't want to get Freudian about this. <laughs> Please but, don't. But, you know, the meticulous man who your father was, would he approve of you having all these clocks that weren't quite accurate or appreciating wabi-sabi? I don't know. It's funny. I haven't thought of this until this question. But he died now in about 10, 10 years ago. And I... I would ring him. Um, he and my mother had been married for just nearly 70 years. They, had known, they died in their, both in their 90s. They had known each other since they were eight. So there was a very, very long and turbulent, but nonetheless long relationship. And so my mother died first, and then six months later my father um, died. But I, I would ring him every day from America. He lived in Rutland in central England. And the Saturday, I rang him and I said, how are you, Father? And um, he said, oh, and he couldn't speak terribly well because he'd had a stroke. But he said that um, this particular day, a, a new CD of some Mozart sonata had, had arrived, and he was looking forward to listening to it that night, but that he had returned to the manufacturer with a very angry letter a watch which didn't seem to be keeping the kind of time that he thought was necessary. So I wrote a very angry letter to him, and I'll post it on Monday. Now, he said, if you excuse me, I'm going to pour myself a horse's neck, which was brandy and dry ginger, which he did, as far as I know, and was dead in the morning. Wow. So the last thing points up your <laughs> meticulous man to the end. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a Korean... Fortune teller once told you you'd live to 88. Yes. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's getting increasingly bad, as I'm <laughs> <laughs> I, I go to London um, 
I get back, providing the situation in Hong Kong allows, because I'm flying through Hong Kong on Wednesday to New York on the 4th, I think, of September, and um, then go back to London on the 14th to have my 75th birthday party. I thought you were going to tell me you were going back to Korea to get a rewrite. No, well, <laughs> I'd love it, but that does mean only 13 more years to no, go. No, well, congratulations. Well, thank you. On achieving 75. Well, that's exactly... Well, yeah, but you don't want to think. think no, but only when you bring it up. I wasn't thinking of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying Sorry. to be polite after you. Um, I meant to ask you, you wrote a book about um, Joseph Needham, the man who loved China. Did you, because New Zealand doesn't get a huge presence in your books. It will in the next one, I understand. But did you find Joseph Needham's friendship with Ruby Alley interesting? Oh, extraordinary. And uh, I, I'm now having to dig into what I can remember about writing that book. But everything about Ruby Alley I found fascinating. I mean, both he and Joseph Needham got, got accused of being apologists for the... Uh, cruelties of yeah. the People's Republic. How did you feel about Joseph Needham? Well, he sort of recanted after um, Tiananmen Square. It's a bit late, isn't it? A wee bit late, yes. I mean, it was, he was, as I think the Daily Telegraph said in the um, obituary, I mean, he was a, a brilliant scientist, a very good college administrator, but politically, a real fathead. And he just <laughs> didn't get it. And he, he would go back to China after the communists had taken over in 1949 and couldn't understand why his, some of his old friends had just disappeared or weren't answering their telephone. And the thought that they might have been sent to re-education camps was utterly alien to his way of living, which he, he thought they're just not behaving in a gentlemanly way. I mean, how dare they? And, and so he really didn't catch on until, well, as, as, as you all know, he believed implicitly that the um, Americans had used biological weapons during the Korean War, which was word that was put around by Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong. And he headed a commission of extremely left-wing biochemists who went to China to investigate this and came back saying, without a doubt, the Americans had dropped anthrax infected rice cook cakes over northern part of, uh, of Korea, which we now know to absolute nonsense. But he was utterly excoriated for this. He was nearly, he was a fellow of the Royal Society, as indeed was his wife, and he was um, nearly thrown out of that. His college nearly ended his fellowship, and he was banned from the United States for daring to say such a thing. But the interesting thing was that eventually, as he sort of recovered his reputation and became master of Keyes College, Cambridge, and a towering academic, um, eventually the Americans relented because the whole sort of McCarthyite thing that had, that had caused the, the problem, or one of the causes of the problem, that ebbed away. And in 19, whenever it was, sometime in the 80s, I think, he won uh, an honorary degree from the University of Chicago. And they said, all right, you can come back. And so he came to America. And um, by this time, he was well on in the production of this book, multi-25 volumes, Science and Civilization in China, the longest book in the English language written about China ever, and essentially by one man. So he um, accepted his honorary degree and then gave a series of lectures at Northwestern University in Chicago 
on aspects of Chinese tech, ancient Chinese technology that we had always assumed that we were the best, you know, Westerners were best at. And he, one of his um, lessons or lectures was on gunpowder. We had sort of condescendingly said, oh, well, maybe the Chinese did invent gunpowder, but they only used it for fireworks. And he said, no, I have discovered in the second century AD and again in the fourth century AD, they had siege cannons, they made bombs of various sorts, all using you know, the mixture of charcoal and saltpeter and sulfur, whatever gunpowder is. And um, this was quite a revelation. And he, the class that he um, was teaching was about 25 people, all enthralled, and he drew diagrams of a particular type of bomb that the Chinese had made 2,000 years ago. And one of the people taking notes at the back of the class was a tousle-haired, wild-haired, very clever mathematician who, six weeks later, using precisely that design, sent off the first of a series of bombs that, in this case, killed a security guard in Michigan. And that was Ted Kaczynski, who went on to become the Unabomber. Nice. Yeah, it's extraordinary that the, in a funny sort of way, if only the Americans had retained the ban on him, you know, that Unabomber would never have happened. How extraordinary. Isn't it extraordinary? Um, you set up a monthly journal, newspaper, called the Sandersfield Times, and nearly 10 years ago now, in the very small New England town in which you live. And it's still going. It is. Why did you set that up? Well, I live in this funny little village. How did you end up living in that village, by the way? Um, well, when I left Hong Kong in 1997, um, I was very friendly with the then New York Times correspondent, Larry Zuckerman, and I said to him, honestly, Larry, I don't know whether when the story of the, the retro session, as it's called, is over. We both assumed it would bubble up again, as indeed, of course, it's doing now. But at first, it was going to be quite quiet. Where do I go now? Should I go to New York or London? And I thought to myself, I think if my career might go slightly better if I went to New York. Um, but on the other hand, I, I have great affection for England. I grew up in Dorset and, you know, I like the countryside. And he said, well, what you need is to go to a place that is America, close to New York City or to Boston, but which looks like where you grew up. And my New parents, England. yeah, and his parents had a cottage in a place uh, called Cornwall Bridge in northwestern Connecticut. Come and stay for a couple of weeks. So I stayed and I completely fell in love with it. And does it look like England? It does. And I, I have a, a small farm up there and it could and I have an Aga, I don't know if you know what you know. So it's, it's, it's very sort of English. My wife grates under this, you know, there's a lot of Marmite and Weetabix. And, yeah. yeah, and all that ticking. Dear all the God. ticking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hell. <laughs> so anyway, the Sandersfield Times, yeah. you started it up because? Well, the, the town has got a population, it's, got a, it's very large in area, 50 square miles. And it has a population of 850, I think. So it's tiny and people are separated much from the other. There's very little... Well, so farmers, mostly. Far well, some... It swells up in the summertime when New Yorkers or Bostonians come for, and have summer houses there. But generally speaking, and particularly during the winter in February, March, 
miserable and isolated and windswept and snowy and cold and no one talks to one another. And um, there are three rivers which divide it into sort of little camps and cliques. And I just thought, well, it'd be fun to, um, to see if a newspaper would knit the community together. And also because we, our form of government in New England is the town meeting. You have a town meeting once a year. In this is like the Gilmore Girls. It's what, like what? Have you ever seen the Gilmore Girls? I have not, no. You know what I'm talking about, right? They have town meetings. Oh. It's all very, you know, they seem to all get together and talk about small decisions affecting the town. Well, that's that what exactly what we do. We, we have a budget. It's not very big. It's about three and a half million dollars a year. And we have proposals, you know, to buy a few new fire engine or a new ambulance or spend more money on the schools. And every single one of those decisions is voted on by town meeting. So, um, so that's a perfect democracy, isn't it? It's real. It's democracy red in tooth and claw. It really is. And um, so it used to be that maybe 40 people would turn up at town meeting because it was physically difficult to get to town hall and so forth. So we started the paper, which at first they hated, but they thought, you know, some elitist from outside is telling us how we should run our town. And ah. I said, so for the first six months or so, they would read it and there were all sorts of vulgar jokes about what you should actually use it for and that kind of thing. And, um, and is it free? It's free. You, and delivered? You, um, you can pick it up at the library, the post office, the um, Tucker's Cafe, Silverbook Cafe, various other places, yeah. So, or if you elect to have it sent to you, which a surprisingly large number of people now do, you pay for postage or something. Yeah. But um, the result is that instead of 40 people turning up at town meeting, 400 do. And it's raucous, and there are arguments and fights and... Uh, Democracy is... Like the Gilmore Girls, is right? It? <laughs> yes. But I must tell you then, as, a, as a, a coder to all this, is that when I became an American citizen, um, about now six years ago, um, I decided to run for elected office, and I'm now the moderator of the town, which means that I preside over the town meeting. So for three hours every summer, four if I run a bad town meeting, I have absolute authority. I have a gavel. And I have a constable. If someone talks for more than the three minutes that I allow them, I'll say, constable, remove this person. It's never, hap never happened. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing to be at the sharp edge of real democracy. And that means you've been completely accepted by the community now, then? Well, I don't think I have at all. And I, 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 I worry each time the election comes around that I'll actually be defeated. But I think nobody actually wants the job. Nobody runs against me. <laughs> and I get a budget. I get $150 a year of my pay, and I get to select the members of the Finance Committee. So I have a little, little bit of power. Why do you want to do that? I mean, what is it? Is this, is this the most you've been involved in any place you've lived? Is that? I think so. It's the longest I've ever lived in any one place. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, when you're a foreign correspondent, you wander all over the place and never really put down any roots. And I, I put down my roots when... Obama was in power, and now I wonder whether... You're yeah, but the these the right days. The right is... Ah. So I'm looking very fondly at Scotland. Where Are I... you? Yeah. No, seriously? No, I'm seriously looking at Scotland and thinking... Yeah, but Trump is going to buy that, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> 
Greenland first. Do it one, the, the golf club, that's in eastern Scotland. You don't think this is just a passing phase then? You mean Trump? Yes. Or? Trumpism. Well, no, I mean, this becomes a much more serious issue, of course, but uh, I like to think, I'm optimistic still. I've loved America since I hitchhiked around the country when I was a youngster in the 1960s. I've loved it, I've sort of believed in it and what it theoretically stood for. I know this has been horribly um, uh, altered today. But um, I look back fondly at, at times in American history where the country has clearly gone mad and they got over it. And I think notably of prohibition. I mean, that a country would go so mad as to ban the perfectly pleasurable activity of making strong drink and <laughs> consuming it. Um, they can do anything mad, but they get over it. And now, of course, there's no prohibition. It's struck out of the Constitution and we've got Trump, which we will get over. I'm afraid that we may not get over him until two terms are up. And during those two terms, he can do terrible damage, which he's already starting to do. So I'm optimistic in the long, long term, but gloom-laden in the short term. Hmm. Um, we have question time, and there are roving microphones. So if you should have a question, stick up your hand, and the microphone will come to you. Yes, right there. When you talked about Whitworth, it took me back to when I did shop many decades ago, and I remember we had different types of bolts. There was a Whitworth thread, and I forget what the other one was. They were both imperial. Yes. So it got me thinking about, you've got precision, which you can sort of do on an individual basis, but you've got standards which have got to be set somehow. So what, what's your thought about how you do that relationship between well, precision I mean, and two standards, and how do you set the standards? Well, the last chapter in the book is all about standards, and I'm fascinated by standards, but of course the standard, standards these days are all, and have for a long time, been um, denominated in metric terms. So the yard is defined as something with 12 paces of decimals, percentage of a meter, or the other way around, I can't remember which is longer, but I think the... So, uh, mercifully, the world even though, of course, which countries do not nowadays use metric? Uh, Liberia, Burma, and the United States of America. <laughs> and yet, they produce remarkably precise and successful pieces of engineering, like spacecraft that go to the moon and everything. So, um, standards, which I go on about at great length, uh, and, uh, and as you know, talk about the... the the abandonment of hard standards, like the physical standards, like the ones in Paris, and their replacement by electronic, you know, the decay of certain krypton atoms and so forth, um, hugely important. But everything, even in Liberia, Burma, and the United States, is ultimately dependent on the accuracy, the precision of... of metric standards, thank heavens. There's a hand up there, and there's a hand up there. Excuse me, thank you. 
I'm hanging here, and I guess everybody else's too. How many Model T's survived? How many what? Model T's. Do I have? No. <laughs> there are very few. I mean, it's to be measured in the low thousands now of those 16 million. I mean, they're in museums and you see them in country fairs and things. But... Um, so the ratio is... Is, yeah. Is that because... They fall to pieces. They, right. Yeah. It's, it's not because they were cheap, therefore people didn't look after them, but the Rolls Royces were so expensive, therefore people did look after them. Because that's a different thing, right? That comes into it. I mean, you make a major investment. Interestingly enough, the Rolls Royce increased in price as the years went on. Yes. Uh, because the price of the labour needed to do the filing increased. Whereas the initial purchase price, I think, in 1908 of a Model T was $850 when they stopped making them in the 1920s at $239. So precision mass manufacturing had an advantage in terms not just of what it, it had classic economics, you know, economics of scale, economies of scale, because they got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as the years went on. Yeah. The hand up just there. You mentioned your father was a precision engineer, so obviously this book holds a special place for you, for writing it. Is it the one that you've most enjoyed writing? Um, no, actually. Um, but I should say, I didn't realise that my father was a precision engineer, or that he played a part in the book until I was actually sitting down to write about it, because this book was an idea given to me by a reader. I mean, readers write and come up with all sorts of ideas. You know, my grandmother was an avid collector of moths. I think you should write a book about her. But this guy's father's story was extraordinary, right? He was, yeah, an amazing story. Yes. A chap called Colin Povey, who was, belonged to a profession of which I knew nothing. He was a scientific glass blower, and he lived in Clearwater, Florida. And he was... Well, he had read my books and said nice things about them, and he said he's always been fascinated with precision, and um, why didn't I think about writing a book about it? And it wasn't until I was sort of well into the research that I suddenly thought, gosh, I remember my dad and the gauge blocks, and he made my father use in the big line of work was making tiny electric motors for use in the guidance systems of torpedoes. So a lot of the work was sort of rather secret. Um, but he would show me these things, like these gauge blocks, which really annoyed my mother, because my mother came from Belgium and she made lace, she came from Ghent. And I remember he would put these things, which were invariably covered with machine oil, onto her tablecloths and move them about and things. And she just, anyway, surprising they remained as married as long as they did. But, um, but no, I think my favorite book was one that didn't sell particularly well, although it is still in print. And that was a book about the Yangtze River, called The River at the Center of the World, where I took a year off and traveled from Shanghai, where it effectively comes out into, or debouches, into the East China Sea, <laughs> right up to a place called Gelandandong in Tibet, where it, where it rises. And that book was enormous fun to do. And I went with a woman who unfortunately recently died, who was an amazing uh, companion, travel companion. And I just, I love China, everything to do with China. So. That I enjoyed, but enjoyment has nothing to do with commercial success. 
I should ask you about Hong Kong, given that you spend a lot of time in China and in Hong Kong. What do you think is going to happen there? I think it's going to end very badly. I think. Tiananmen Square again? I can't see they would be idiotic to do that. But I think their riot control techniques will be very brutal, but I don't think they'll employ the army. I mean, the PAP, the People's Armed Police, you've seen their armoured cars in Shenzhen at the moment. I, I would imagine they'll come in, possibly even today, because there are going to be big demonstrations today which are illegal. They've threatened to close down the airport again on, I think, Monday and Tuesday. And I feel, I have to say, enormous solidarity with the the people in Hong Kong, who have long been ill-regarded by the people in Beijing, who are, after all, I mean, they're, they're tall, Mandarin-speaking, noodle-eating, whereas they regard the Hong Kong Chinese as being diminutive, rice-eating, ill-educated, grubby people. I mean, there's a real racial divide north and south of the Yangtze, which is one of the many reasons that I quite like the Yangtze book. And the contempt with which the Cantonese are regarded by many you know, northern Chinese plays into this whole situation. Um, leaving aside the, the whole communist business and the freedom that the Hong Kong Chinese so desperately want. So, I mean, to say this thing is to court, I mean, I dare say this will be picked up and I'll be probably not allowed to go to China for a long while, but someone's got to stand up to them. And if these young, Hong Kongers are going to do so, then all power to them, I think. And they're very, very brave, because it's an awful, awful situation. But I gather it's spilling into universities here in, in the Antipodes, Australia and New be. Zealand, yeah. Yeah, we're, um, we're concerned about China here. We don't quite know how to feel about it. Well, I think one Less has to distinguish- of xenophobia. Yeah, I mean, one has to distinguish between China and the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party, in my way of thinking, is an evil organization. China, one of the most wonderful countries I've ever been to, and I adore it. And I just think we've got to somehow wrest power from the CCP. But that's going to take a lot of doing in a long, long time. Mm -mm. Um, we have time for one more question, and it's right up at the back. You always have to make it a very good question when it's the last one. <laughs> no pressure. Simon, um, you're a man of 75 years. You don't look it from here, you look a lot younger, but arguably you'll it's the have- the makeup, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'll get better glasses, I think. <laughs> <laughs> arguably you'll have 25 years of quality life left and maybe more. Uh, what better place to come and live rather than Scotland would be Christchurch in New Zealand. <laughs> Um, I'd like your comments on that. Uh, additionally, uh, we had a cat called Simon. Oh. Uh, he had nine lives and he died when he was eight. But however, <laughs> um, you're a most incredible man and uh, Christchurch has got open arms for you. Well, that's a very, very sweet thing to say. Uh, two things to observe on that. One of my favourite films growing up as a small boy was the Yangtze incident about HMS Amethyst, which was captured on the, on the Yangtze during the revolution. And uh, they had a cat called Simon, and I've been to his grave, <laughs> uh, a, a cat grave in, in Plymouth. But the other thing is that my, the editor who hired me on The Guardian, a chap called Geoffrey Taylor, 
lived and indeed not too long ago died here in Christchurch very, very happily. And I remember him fondly for two reasons. One, for hiring me, which was very nice, but one for writing what I thought was one of the loveliest tongue-in-cheek editorials in the paper. There was every Saturday, there was a tradition that there would be an editorial which would be light-hearted and uh, you know, something weird. And he said his favorite word in all the word, world was the word malmerocking, which is spelled M-A-L-L-E-M-A-R-O-K-I-N-G, malmerocking. And the definition of malmerocking in the Chambers 20th Century Dictionary was the carousing of drunken seamen on ice-bound Greenland whaling ships. <laughs> and he thought, how wonderful that the English language has a word that encompasses but, but, and this was the editorial he wrote, the new edition of Chambers' 20th Century Dictionary, which for me is the best single-volume dictionary you could buy. He looked immediately for Malmerocking to make sure it was still in the dictionary, and indeed it was, but the definition was subtly changed. It said, Malmerocking, the carousing of drunken seamen on ice-bound whaling ships. It took out the word Greenland. And he wrote this editorial, thundering editorial in the Saturday edition, <laughs> saying it seems that the foul practice of Malmerocking has unleashed itself from its native Greenland and is now spreading all over the world. <laughs> it must be stopped immediately. Simon Winchester, ladies and gentlemen. Simon's... Thank you very much. Simon will be signing books at the UBS stand, I believe. Is this correct? Thank you. So, thank you all very much. Bye. Thank you. Pleasure.